Hello and welcome to the Dementia Researcher Podcast and Season's Greetings. It's that time of year when we put out a special show of highlight clips, just to give everybody a couple of weeks off. 2021 has been another year of highs and lows, but despite the challenges, it's been wonderful to be able to continue to bring researchers together to discuss their work and, of course, careers advice. 2021 has been wonderful for partnerships too. We've worked with the National Center for Research Methods, Alzheimer's Association, and many other great partners to bring you news. But what continues to blow us away is the amazing engagement we get from all of you, the listeners. The Dementia Researcher podcast is now a regular in over 60 countries, and this year should see us hit over 100,000 downloads. Of course, all of this is only possible thanks to the National Institute for Health Research, Alzheimer's Research UK, and our other partner, the Alzheimer's Society. I'd also like to thank our fantastic colleagues at University College London, and of course, all of our contributors and guests on the show. Next year, we're going to be back and mixing up the format to ensure we regularly cover all topics you enjoy. We're also going to introduce some new themes and hopefully, COVID allowing, make sure that we're recording back in the studio and at live events. So thank you again for listening. Have a great festive season and a happy new year. Enjoy our highlights reel and some narrated blog highlight shows we'll be sharing over Christmas. We'll be back on the 3rd of January. I'm Clarissa Giebel and I'm delighted to be here today and host the show for the first time. Briefly introducing myself, I'm a research fellow at the University of Liverpool and the National Institute of Health Research, Applied Research Collaboration Northwest Coast, which is a mouthful. And my research is exploring how we can enable people living with dementia live well and independently in the community for longer. Recently, this has heavily involved the COVID-19 focus. In today's podcast, we will be discussing COVID-19 and care homes. Including, including national and international research and clinical work, as well as direct experiences of having a loved one with dementia living in a care home during this pandemic. Adam, about your experiences about care home staff? Uh, well, I've been working with care home staff for uh, a decade, so I, I have largely a positive view of, of, of care home staff and the uh, dedication and skill that they bring to their day-to-day -day work. Um, and I think that one of the things that I have continually been um, um, impressed with over you know, my long period of time of working with staff in the sector is how they put resident care at the centre of um, their uh, sort of uh, ethos. And so, you know, the big question when we first started looking at these new technologies was, could they do something to transform and improve resident care during the pandemic? And the answer is, well, yes, they could. First of all, they could help to protect residents from COVID. And secondly, they could help reopen uh, parts of the care home sector to things like visiting. And the minute the care home staff held that, uh, heard that, uh, they were very uh, keen uh, to get involved and to, you know, try out these new uh, innovative uh, technologies. Um, so I think, yeah, um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the care home sector uh, and the staff that work in it. Okay, great. Thank you. Ramona, um, what about 
the experiences from the Netherlands. So I know you've recently published, well, you were one of the co-authors of a long-term care COVID report on safe visiting with international collaborators. Um, could you tell us a bit more about that? Um, let me start with the Dutch situation. Um, to give you just a short background, um, if we talk about nursing homes or care homes in the Netherlands, there are about 115,000 residents that are currently living there and about 270,000 staff members who are taking care of these residents. Um, and most of the residents suffer from dementia or other cognitive diseases and a smaller part suffers from somatic diseases. But um, yeah, only the most frail people enter a nursing home in, in the Netherlands. Um, and what we saw um, in February and March, the whole pandemic uh, started in the Netherlands. So um, I think in February, at the end of February, the first infections um, popped up. And what we saw in March, at the 20th of March, is that there was a whole uh, blank visitor ban. So people were not allowed to leave the nursing homes or uh, visitors were not allowed to enter. And uh, that ban took for yeah, two months. Um, and in May, the Dutch Ministry of Health um, wanted to start a pilot um, in which they wanted to experiment what would happen if you open or reopen the homes for visitors. And together with colleagues from the University of Nijmegen, it's another Dutch university, um, the ministry asked us to uh, monitor this whole process. So what we did is um, at the 11th of May, um, a selection of nursing homes, 26 homes, they are all spread across the Netherlands, were allowed to visit under, uh, through uh, open for visitors under very strict conditions. For example, um, they, uh, all the homes um, were not allowed to have any COVID infection uh, to participate in that um, pilot. The organization should have uh, protocols available that clearly regulate how a visit should look like. There was one person per resident who was allowed to enter the nursing home once a week. So the conditions were very strict. You could also think about different hygiene measures um, that were taken into consideration. And um, they asked us to monitor the soul reopening. And we, um, conducted interviews with um, yeah, mostly managers from these different nursing homes, the 26. And uh, in addition, we had five locations where we um, did a case study to also talk to relatives and to different staff members to talk about their experiences. And we had, for example, look at the compliance. So um, there are a lot of rules that um, have to be considered while a, um, a relative is visiting and um, what is the compliance on that. And we also had a look at what are the effects on residents, relatives and staff members. And um, this pilot was successful. So we uh, saw first that there uh, were no new infections due to the visitors that were allowed to enter. Um, it could also be the case that it was in local areas where the infection rate was low back then, so that should be taken into account too. 
Um, and we also saw um, positive consequences for residents, relatives, and staff members. So we saw uh, changes in mood and um, behavior of residents, but also um, yeah, positive feelings, really emotions from family members and also staff members who said, yeah, it was a very hard period. And um, now we have to seek a balance between um, protecting our residents while at the same time, we want them to have contact with their family members. So um, yeah, the pilot was successful. And at the end of May, so uh, two weeks later, the government decided to allow visitors in all nursing homes um, when they did not have any COVID infections. So hello, my name is Dr. Anna Volkma and I'm delighted to be your host for this week's show. I'm sure you've heard from me before, but if you're new to our podcast, I'm a research fellow and lecturer at University College London, and I also work clinically as a speech and language therapist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, helping people living with dementia and language and communication difficulties. Now, this week's topic is particularly close to my heart. I think I say that every time, <laughs> but it focuses on one of the language-led dementias, namely logopenic variant primary progressive aphasia. And this is a relatively rare disease, often considered an atypical Alzheimer's type dementia, and has only really been recognized in the clinical and research literature fairly recently. Logopenic variant PPA affects specific aspects of a person's ability to understand and communicate words and sentences. And due to its recent conceptualization, there's still a fairly limited understanding about the breadth and behavioral difficulties that people with logopenic variant PPA face. So Siddha, could you tell us a bit about the history as of logopenic variant PPA? I keep saying PPA, which is short for primary progressive aphasia. But could you just tell us a little bit of the history of logopenic variant PPA as a dementia syndrome? Yeah, so it's really interesting um, because um, before we understand where the logopenic variant of PPA came from, we have to really understand what actually constituted the definition of PPA back in the day and how did the syndrome of PPA come into evolution. Um, in the last about 15 to 20 years, there's been a lot of active research in the field of PPA, but actually focal uh, neurodegenerative disorders of language have been described um, even the, as early as 1892. Um, in fact, there were um, Arnold Pick, uh, who's uh, famously known for uh, their work on Pick's disease, uh, has uh, had had mentioned a few patients uh, who did show a lot of language difficulties, which sort of sort of started out uh, focused on language, but also um, evolved to eventually show a lot of behavior and other generalized cognitive impairment. Um, and in fact, um, there's been a lot of reports in the early 1900s as well of patients showing um, language difficulties, but again, these were not tracked well enough to understand whether the origin was actually just the language impairment per se, or was it language impairment in the context of generalized uh, dementia. Um, but it's not really until the 1980s where Meshulam... He's kind of the guru, he's the star, isn't he, of PPA? 
yeah. Um, and it's only in, in the 80s when Mesalam described six cases of a progressively declining language impairment in the absence of fairly, well, in the relative absence of um, other uh, cognitive difficulties that the concept of PPA actually, uh, I mean, it took got a lot of importance. Um, and I think what's interesting um, about the LVPPA history is that I feel like it, when you track back uh, into the older literature, you learn that it came out of a mixed bag of a mixed PPA uh, syndrome. So it was once Meshulam had described PPAs, there was a lot of work on PPA that started emerging. And I think people um, really were able to understand that there are definitely two types of PPA, which is the semantic variant and the non-fluent variant. These were quite clear. But there were always these other patients who showed a mixture of these difficulties or difficulties that did not fit the criteria for the semantic or the non-fluent variant PPA. Um, and it's only in that mixed bag that um, in about 2004, when uh, the UCSF team led by Marilu Gono-Tempini uh, found that there's actually a systematic pattern of difficulties, uh, language difficulties in, within that mixed bag of patients. And uh, revisiting some of the old metulum descriptions, um, I think it's within this mixed bag that the idea of LVPPA came out. Mm. And um, I guess it's worth now, as we started talking about the there being three different variants. There's this semantic variant, which is where people lose their understanding of word meanings. And then there's the non-fluent variant where people are considered to be um, apraxic. So they have this effortful uh, difficulty in producing and articulating speech and or um, an agrammatism. But People with logopenic variant, as Siddharth, you've mentioned, they experience very different uh, difficulties with their language. And I wondered, maybe Shaz, could you explain that in a bit more detail for us? Absolutely. So just adding to what Sid was just describing um, and what you just mentioned, Anna, I think that there are three internationally recognized variants or mm. subtypes of PPA. And one of which is logopenic PPA. And I think that it can be really contrasted by the, uh, from the other variants as well. And just to kind of you know, highlight the two core features of what constitutes or what characterizes LVPPA, um, uh, those are uh, word finding difficulty, as well as difficulty in repeating longer phrases and sentences. And a lot of neurologists, medical professionals would refer to this as auditory verbal working memory. I think uh, speech and language therapists like to call this the phonological loop problem, where you have the phonological store, which is uh, your ability to hold the words that you hear, and you have the articular, uh, articulatory process, which helps you repeat those words back in this loop fashion. And um, I think we all can agree that many uh, specialists, as well as researchers, all say, oh, it's so imperative for LVPPA to be diagnosed early. But as we may know that there are many challenges to really look for these early signs in LVPPA, especially when the language symptoms are so mild and it's so subtle. And it might take a while for patients and families to really understand that there is a problem with the individual, that uh, language functions are perhaps changing, 
or I think some people even wonder, is this normal aging or mm. is this a pathologically driven language change? And I think some patients might really struggle in distinguishing between those two. And based on my experience as well, a lot of the patients um, actually come to us for second or third opinion because previous uh, doctors or medical staff had said, oh, you know, it might be due to anxiety or depression. So I think there is this problem while it's so important to detect early signs and know what these early signs are, but there are also challenges in getting that early diagnosis. My name is Dr. Yvonne Couch, and I'm an Alzheimer's Research UK Fellow at the University of Oxford, and I'm excited to be taking a turn at hosting the Dementia Researcher podcast. Thank you all for tuning in for this week's two-part special discussing the 2021 Alzheimer's Research UK conference, which took place virtually this year. This was my first specialist conference. I'm used to going to big ones that are just on neuroscience or clear, so it was a totally different experience, and I found the whole thing absolutely delightful. The balance of clinical research and fundamental science was awesome, and it was good to hear talks discussing everything from careers to the problems with clinical trials to drug discovery and design. So I'm delighted to be joined by four wonderful panelists today. We have Beth Eyre from the University of Sheffield, who you may know from her blogs on the Dementia Researcher website. We also welcome Dr. Lucy Russell and Dr. Aitana Sohob Esteve, who are both research fellows at University College London, working in the Dementia Research Centre. And finally, Michelle Narsens, who is currently a research assistant at the University of Cambridge at the Centre for Frontotemporal Dementia. It was a digital conference. It was a virtual conference. Um, and I personally thought the platform was really interesting. But I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about it. So, Beth, should we start with you? Um, I quite liked it, actually. This is my first proper virtual conference. I've not really had any experience with the others. And um, I hadn't really been to any real conferences before. So I have nothing really to compare things to. So I guess that's quite good. Um, but I, I thought it was really accessible. I liked that you could chat to other delegates. Um, I had a couple of conversations with people and I really liked the on-demand section afterwards. So if, if you did miss a talk, because I had to miss one or two um, because of things I couldn't get out of, it's nice to know that it's still there and I can go and catch up on it. Yeah, definitely. And Michelle, you're going to be relatively new at this whole conference game because you're sort of much earlier in your career than all us old people. What? How did you find the, the platform? Yeah, I really liked it. Um, the setup was quite minimalistic, so it was quite easy to find your way, find when things were being presented, where to find the posters. So I went to AAIC in summer and I thought that platform was way more complicated and more, more complicated to move across because um, I couldn't really find things. So I just chose to watch things on demand uh, and I liked this a lot better. Um, what I would have preferred to be there was closed caption options to the videos. Maybe they are there, but I didn't see them. I think that would help accessibility. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that front. I, I do, although I do occasionally find them distracting when they start to miss, especially when people have accents, when they start to mistranslate what they're saying and then you just get distracted looking at the funny sentences that are clearly not what the person just said. But if it's done well, it's really helpful. So Lucy and Aitana, have you done many virtual conferences over the last year? How did you find this compared to the ones that you've already done? Yeah, we've been to a few, haven't we? Um, I thought it was very good on a whole. Um, I thought that, you know, in general, the platform ran well. 
I did have a few issues with it freezing. I don't know if other people did on the live video. Yes, definitely, uh, repeatedly. Frustrating, um, but you know, it was a quick fix. You know, refresh the the screen and, and it was back. Um, perhaps in my old age, um, I would have perhaps liked a like a PDF of the agenda. Um, I liked the the interactive style of the agenda and the way you could bookmark the sessions that you liked. Um, but when I first got into the, the conference at the, the start, I just wanted to have a quick glimpse through what was on and the clicking between the pages. But I mean, it was a minor thing. Um, it, it worked perfectly well. Um, but yeah, that would have been the only thing I would have uh, would have liked. Yeah. Antonia, how, yeah, how did you find yeah, it? I agree with Lucy. I mean, it was great. And I really liked the way um, that you go to the day and you can see all day and you click and you linked directly to the talk. Uh, but yeah, I missed maybe a PDF agenda as well. And also just one thing that uh, have driven me a bit crazy is the poster notifications. So if you got any comment, uh, you have to you tag your poster because, well, maybe it's something, it has something it only happened to me, but I couldn't get any notifications that people was asking me things in the poster and I had to tag every time. But for the rest, I think it was really good. Yeah. Yeah, it was a nice platform. Go, Lucy, you've got something to say. Yeah, another thing I really appreciated, and thank you, ARUK, for doing it, is the breaks. I have been to a number of yes. that have slammed you from like five hours at a time without a break. Um, so I really did appreciate those. So thank you. Yes, we've got, we've got lots of nodding from all the other panel members. And I went to one earlier in the summer where they did, they did flash presentations. And don't get me wrong, I love a flash presentation, but this was, these were all five minute talks. They'd done it poster style, so you could barely see anything. And they did about 15 of them in one go. And I got to about seven and I was like, I don't know what's going on, my brain hurts. So yeah, repeated breaks. And the fact that they were half days, so that you could spend the other half of the day doing, you know, science or, or, or childcare or whatever you're, you know, looking after your cats in the case of Selena, whose cat like repeatedly pops up on Twitter, which I love. Um, but yeah, it was it was a really nice layout. I, as a new person, I really enjoyed the um, the the disturbing, you know, dating app style matching. You know, who's who's le because I found someone who's doing stroke and vascular dementia and inflammation. I was like, oh, let's be friends. It was really childish. Michelle, did you want to leap in? Yeah, there's another thing I really like was that the, the on-demand session was available the next day. Some conferences, they wait until the whole conference is done. But especially since it was only a half day, I could just choose to watch things back the next day, which was really nice. Yeah, there was plenty of space, which was lovely. Before we start today, I just want to thank everyone who voted for us in the People's Choice Podcast Awards. I'm delighted to say that we made it through to the finals. Uh, judging has started and we'll get the results on International Podcast Day on the 30th of September. Uh, there will be a link to the live stream of the awards show on our website, although I think it's in the US and it's in the middle of the night. So I have to pre-record an acceptance speech, even if we don't win. And um, and then sit up at 2 a.m. to see if if we won. But thank you ever so much again. Everybody that took time out to vote for us all across the world is fantastic to make the final 10. 
and we really appreciate you for your continued listening and for taking that time. Thank you. So back to today's show. Hello and welcome to Dementia Researcher, a science and careers podcast for everyone, not just dementia researchers, despite the name. I'm Adam Smith. I'm the program director for the NIHR, which probably sounds much fancier than it actually is. And I'm one of the people behind this show. On this podcast, we aim to drop some knowledge on you and encourage you to discover something new about the research field you work in or to discover something about another field and how it connects to your own. Because connections are important. We also hope to provide a little support and advice to get you through all the different stages of your career, from undergraduate to finally getting that tenured position that seems so far off in the distance. Today's show... Yeah, it has to be said, Scotland, considering the size of Scotland and the population, it, I mean, it's its massive for research compared to it, the size of its population and outputs. I feel sure. I mean, it would, would, is that... Is that just my impression? Well, I'm going. To, I'm going. To, I'm going to just jump in, and, and you know, I, 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 I always have to preface these things. And as, as many of you listeners know, I actually still live between London and Edinburgh, and for spend more time in London than I've ever spent in Scotland. So none, none of the, what I say is hopefully going to be sounding parochial. But Scotland does have the highest per capita higher edu- education institution system in the world. And there's more universities per capita and more university places per capita in Scotland than there's anywhere else in the world. So I think we're very fortunate to have a incredible backbone and infrastructure for academic um, activity and output. Um, I often reflect that, you know, sometimes people say Scotland punches above its weight, but I don't like the term of thinking about we're punching people. I think we influence above our weight. Um, and I think that's part of what this stretch strategy may be able to do for not just for Scotland, but dare say for the rest of the UK and beyond. Although given, if I remember rightly, doesn't Scotland have the lowest life expectancy of any country in Western Europe as well? So you can see why having a policies like this are actually really important to yeah. to yeah. add to the greater good. Or either that or you come to Scotland, get your education, then leave. Is so I think a think good, the, clever thing to do? And then, and then go back again in my case. Yeah. But, I, but, I, but, I, but I, no, I think that's a really, really important observation because I think that's, that's the shame of the first statement is the observation you made in the second statement, that although you have this incredible health service and incredible powerhouse of academic activity, how come, and it's not, I don't think it's the whole population, I think it's just pockets of, of, of deprivation in Scotland are, dare I say, obscene relative to the rest of the country. I mean, there's parts of, but also if we're going to throw figures at each other, the highest GDP per capita of any city in, in the UK is not London, it's Edinburgh. But you go 30 miles down the road along the M8 and you have the highest levels of social deprivation in Europe. Now that now that's not going to be fixed by a brain health strategy or a research strategy, but what it what it what it what it what it needs to do is all of these strategies have to accommodate those particular issues. We know, for instance, that that the risk factors for dementia, the Lancet Commission report 12 risk factors, if you like, almost every single one of them accumulates in people from more deprived socioeconomic backgrounds. So if we're to develop a brain health strategy or a dementia strategy or a research strategy, it has to first and foremost be able to address the needs of people from those communities. And, and a, 
a good, well-delivered brain health strategy is also going to benefit in so many other ways as well, isn't it? Because so many of the things that are in that Lancet Commission that will help with brain health and prevention of dementia are also the same things that you would use to have good cardiac health. And, exactly. Yeah. But, but good for your brains, good for your heart. Uh, yeah, well done. <laughs> Somebody had to say it. I'm Dr. Samuel Moxon, and I'm delighted to return as the host of the Dementia Podcast. Our guest this week is someone whose work I've followed for many years, New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Neil Barnard. Dr. Barnard has led numerous research studies investigating the effects of diet on diabetes, body weight, and chronic pain, including a groundbreaking study of dietary interventions in type 2 diabetes funded by the National Institutes of Health that paved the way for viewing type 2 diabetes as a potentially reversible condition for many patients. And I'd like to start with Alzheimer's disease and the, the simple question of can we do something to help prevent such a debilitating disease? And if so, what can we do with our lifestyle? The short answer is that there is a tremendous amount that we can do. And that, that's so important because up until recently, um, and really still today in the minds of many people, uh, dementia is simply a function of old age and genetics. If you've got the genes, it's just a matter of time. Uh, and... Uh, old age brings with it dementia is just part of the years going by. Yeah. That is pretty clearly not the case. And there are things that research has brought us that are surprisingly simple and that we can implement tomorrow morning. Okay, so that's, let's touch on that last point now. You say something we can implement tomorrow morning. It's quite a, a powerful message because it means, it gives you this, 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 this idea that there is something you can do and you can do it right away. So what are the specifics of that? Is it changing diet? And if so, what should we be looking to eat more of and less of? Yes, uh, diet is the cornerstone. And I give the credit really to researchers in Chicago, the Chicago Health and Aging Project. They got started back in 1993 and it was an observational study where they rounded up thousands of people, they looked at dietary patterns and they looked at who succumbed to dementia. Okay. And they even factored in who had genetic risk, who didn't. And uh, when you put this study together with a number of other studies, the pattern is really very clear. First of all, we indict bad fat. And when I say bad fat, I mean saturated fat. Okay, yeah. um, that's the fat that's solid at room temperature. Um, cheese, cheese, dairy products are the biggest source, meat is the big source. So uh, if you have a diet that doesn't have any dairy or meat in it, you are miles ahead. Um, the risk of Alzheimer's is probably cut too less than half, probably maybe less, oh, wow. than, less than a third what it would have been. Um, but it's not just avoiding the bad stuff. It's also bringing in good things. Um, and generally speaking, a dietary pattern based on vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and I'm going to say legumes, but that really means beans and lentils. That is a good basic pattern. And let me throw in um, modest amounts of nuts and seeds, yeah. um, 25 grams, 30 grams nuts and seeds because they have vitamin E and vitamin E people who have vitamin E, not from pills, but from sub, but, but from foods. Um, and that's an important distinction in the research studies. Uh, they cut their risk of Alzheimer's about 50%. Wow. So just by simply eating the right things, you can, you can hugely reduce the risk. And that's independent of genetic risk factors, like say ApoE4, for example. Yes. Uh, and that is so critically important because people have, rightly been concerned about this genetic trait. It's a, it's a single 
genetic trait. It's the epsilon four allele on the ApoE. And if you got it from both parents, you're at 10 to 15 times the risk. So yeah. people have been very concerned. And when they get the bad findings on their test results, they get very nervous about it, rightly so. Uh, but let me say a word. Researchers have looked at individuals who specifically had the ApoE epsilon four allele. And if they were avoiding bad fats, their risk of developing Alzheimer's was cut by oh, a good 80% compared to people with similar genetics, yeah. but who were tucking into the cheese omelets and the, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the animal fat and that kind of thing. Yeah. And the, the problem, of course, is that in our cultures, in, in here in North America, certainly throughout Europe, uh, up and down Britain, um, these high saturated fat foods are, are front and center. Um, and have been, but luckily there has been a huge movement for many years now to remember humble beans. <laughs> Dr. John Desmond, welcome to the Dementia Researcher Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And I'm gonna start with the most important question, which is how are you today? Sam, I'm good, man. I'm very good. I'm in what I usually refer to as my one hour post porridge and coffee optimum so i had a nice bowl of porridge for breakfast earlier with a little bit of um a little bit of peanut butter uh, some fruit in there and a cup of coffee and usually about an hour after that i'm at my optimum so you've got me at my best that's odd because I, i've had exactly the same for breakfast oh no uh, really oh, yeah it was like flaxseed chai seeds soy milk all that kind of stuff lovely it's a great oh, way to start snap. the day yeah so so basically we're set up to absolutely smash this conversation yeah, it does. It does help. You do. You do get like a nice energy boost. Um, I'm not sure how much of it is the coffee and how much of it is the carbs, but you feel you do feel great. Um, you certainly do. I, I saw some very inter really interesting paper recently about the mood boosting potential of peanut butter. Um, so, as a big peanut butter fan, I've always found that after consuming peanut butter, I just get this little mood enhancement. You know. Yeah. Um, but it's probably just one cog in a big machine, right? Especially, I love, I love Marmite peanut butter as well, which I know isn't for everybody, but you mix, you mix a bit of B12 in there and it's just delicious. Yeah, love it or hate it, I'm a fan. Um, yeah, <laughs> so well, should we start then um, by you outlining to our listeners uh, who you are and what you do? Oh, thanks, Sam. So I'm Dr. Alan Desmond. I work in the UK National Health Service, NHS. Um, I'm a gastroenterologist, so I see and treat patients with significant gastrointestinal problems. And, you know, in, the, in high-income countries, and thanks to our... 21st century diet and lifestyle, doctors like me are very, very busy because conditions like diverticular disease, bowel cancer, precancerous polyps, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease have become so prevalent in countries like the UK, the US, Australia, Europe, that, they've that they're almost regarded as normal, Sam. So there's, sadly, there's plenty of work for gastroenterologists to do. We are never, we are never not busy. But in addition to being a practicing full-time gastroenterologist, I'm also a um, very vocal advocate for the power of healthier approaches to food in enhancing our digestive health, helping to protect us from developing serious digestive health problems, but also helping us to improve our prognosis if we are diagnosed with a serious digestive health problem. And because of the experience that I have had while trying to get evidence-based answers for my patients, when they ask their gastroenterologist, what should I eat, doctor? Which every patient does. Because of my feeling of a duty of care that I should have evidence-based answers to that question, 
what should I eat, doctor? So all the way through my training, and particularly since I became a consultant or attending or whatever you want to call it in 2012, um, I've always been interested to find evidence-based answers to that question. So as well as reading and scouring the medical journals for all the latest information on colonoscopic techniques and polypectomy and medications and you know, uh, anti-TNF drugs and biologic drugs and all those wonderful tools that we as gastroenterologists have at our disposal. I've always read the papers with great interest on the effect of food on our digestive health. What we eat is an incredibly important determinant of our digestive health. A lot of that has to do with the makeup of the food, the constituents of the food, the nutritional profile of the food, but also very much to do with the effect that those foods have on our gut microbial health. And although all of that science and theory is fascinating and interesting, and I love getting deep into it, for me, Sam, as a doctor who is willing to talk to his patients about food and give them evidence-based answers and encourage them to unprocess and eat more plant-based foods as part of their management uh, plan, the transformations I've seen and the benefits I've seen and the positive feedback I've had from my patients time and time and time again has led me to, you know, being an advocate. And that's why we're here to talk today. That's why I do other interviews. I wrote a book about this last year, which came out in January. Um, so as well as being a full-time NHS gastroenterologist, I'm also now an author and an advocate and an ambassador for health professionals, excuse me, Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, which is a UK-based organization, which aims to educate patients, the public, healthcare providers, and policymakers on the benefits of unprocessing our diet eating more plants and pushing back against the standard Western diet. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.